And I want to get you thinking today before we look into the text of Scripture. And I want you to wonder, how did the Holocaust happen? How did the Holocaust happen? How did it happen in a society that is, in many respects, not that dissimilar to our own? We had an educated people, people who were industrialized, uh, people who were, who were prospering, at least in, in certain degrees, people who were intellectual, a scientific community, a, a first world country. How did the Holocaust happen? It's not like just you go to bed one night and you wake up the next morning and think, well, I think killing millions of Jews is a good idea. Let's build a gas chamber. That doesn't come out of nowhere. Where did that idea come from? Well, what I want to, show you, what I want to share with you is even before there was a Holocaust, in fact, years before there was a Holocaust, even before World War II started in the late 1930s, uh, Germany, under the Nazi power, began a euthanasia program. And this euthanasia program was designed to, well, in essence, get rid of some of the members of society that were living a life not worth living. And they started with, with newborns, with babies who were just born, but yet were born with, with serious defects, abnormalities, uh, brain dysfunction, whatever it might be. And so those, those newborns were then euthanized. They were, they were killed. The doctor killed those children. About 10,000 children died as part of that euthanasia program in Nazi Germany. But it didn't remain at children. But it also, a short time after that program started, they began dealing with the elderly, those who are already in, in state-run homes, like nursing homes. Those who were in psychiatric wards. Those who had significant disabilities and either were at the end of their life or were living a life that was not worth living and they were a burden upon their families and a burden upon society. And so at that time, they would either bus or by rail bring these individuals to a medical center. And that medical center had gas chambers where they would emit carbon monoxide gas, look like a shower. And they attached to that was a crematorium where they'd burn the corpses and then send the ashes to the family with a note explaining that their loved one had, had passed away. And here are their ashes. It is estimated that about 250,000 people died that way in the late 1930s, early 1940s. This was before the Holocaust. But this was a model, a microcosm of what would affect and later kill millions of people. Now this euthanasia program was actually paused temporarily in 1941. When some of the German people heard about what was going on. And they begin to say, this is not right. And part of that was the church, the clergy, were preaching sermons saying this is not right to take these people away and to, and to kill them. And so the program was paused for a season and then it resumed later on, but more discreetly. Now this program, this euthanasia program, laid the groundwork for what later was known as the Holocaust, where the same measures and similar thinking was used to exterminate the Jewish people and other people who were deemed to be living lives not worth living. Now, history never repeats itself exactly the same way, but it does repeat itself. And there are important lessons for us to learn 
from 1930s and 1940s Germany. The first is ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And bad ideas have disastrous consequences. And here we see a bad idea. And in one sense, it's very practical. Here we have a burden upon society. And so we're going to rid ourselves of this burden so our society can be more prosperous. But that idea would later lead them to embrace killing millions of people and committing genocide because of their ethnicity. The second thing that we learn from this is that bad ideas act as a wedge. Bad ideas act as a wedge. You know the phrase, you know, get your foot in the door. You know, and you think of a wedge-shaped object. When that gets into a door and, and you keep pushing that wedge-shaped object, the door opens more and more and more and more and soon the door is wide open. And everything is unleashed. Whatever was in there or behind there is now readily available. You can think of a wedge-shaped object going into a tiny little crack in the foundation. You put a wedge there and you begin hitting on one end and that wedge is going to head into that foundation and soon that foundation is going to open right up and be destroyed. And bad ideas have the, or they're very similar to acting like that wedge. We're, we're just, it's like a seed getting, getting in there and then it begins to grow and to grow and to grow. And before long, you have this massive tree and its roots have completely shattered the foundation in which it was planted. And so we see this program begun by the Germans later had its fruit in the Holocaust to disastrous effect. So with those two lessons, ideas have consequences and bad ideas act like a wedge. I want to think now about the story of Canada. In 2015, our Supreme Court, the nine justices voted unanimously to strike down laws, outline or out- outline uh, doctor-assisted suicide. It was now, um, there, was, there was no laws governing it and they, they told the government, you need to make laws because the old laws were unconstitutional. And what, what's, what's incredible about that is the, the place in the constitution or in the charter that they pointed to was the right for life and liberty. And they said, well, there, the right of life and liberty is really a right to kill yourself or to ask your doctor to kill yourself. Now, if you were to read that document and you were to read that into that document, you know, you would fail a, a grade four comprehension exam. It's just not there. It, it, it's not the at- intent of that document. It was, there's no way the authors had this in mind when they penned those words. But this is an ideology that is then imposed upon the text. And whether it's the biblical text or the constitution, they'll impose their ideology. And so in 2016, New laws were fashioned and passed in our country, which then legalized what is known as medical assistance in dying, made. Now, of course, when that passed in 2016, there was a number who voiced their disapproval, but it was, the wedge was in the door. The wedge was in the foundation. And of course they said, well, there's, there's so many safeguards and this won't, won't apply to very many people. Only, only a few select flu in, in extreme pain and suffering and, and very near to death. But then in March 2021, new legislation was passed to expand euthanasia in Canada. That wedge went a little further. A lot less noise was generated by those who opposed that year. It was already the law of the land. And now some of those safeguards that were promised in 2016 were being removed. 
Now you can apply for maid, for assistance in dying, even if your death is not reasonably foreseeable. You don't even have to be dying and say, I just, I just need this because I'm in extreme suffering. It might not lead to my death, but the suffering needs to end. And I want you to kill me and my life. Other requirements were also relaxed, although it still prohibited euthanasia for those suffering from mental illness, including depression. Although when they passed that bill in 2021, they said in March of 2023, a few months from now, it would then be legal for those who are suffering from mental illness to apply for medical assistance in dying. Now, as this date is coming closer, people are um, giving opposition to the government. So they decided to delay this, at least for a time. We'll see what that looks like. But as they continue to get expert opinion, you can listen to some of these panel discussions that our government is having. There's one expert who is proposing euthanasia for mature minors. That is those who are aged 14 to 17. Can you imagine a 16-year-old struggling with depression and thinking the only way I can do this is my doctor would kill me? That could be, could be completely legal in our country. They're also proposing that infants who are less than one year of age be eligible for assistance in dying if they're undergoing extreme suffering. Now, it might seem shocking for us to Wow, that's exactly what Nazi Germany did. (laughs) But it's very consistent. Because the expert who said that, who gave that piece of advice, says, well, already, whenever a woman gets an ultrasound and if there's anything wrong with the pregnancy, well, they already end that pregnancy, which means if there's anything wrong with that child, we kill the child. And so what's the difference? If they're up to a year old, that we do the same thing out of the womb. Because maybe... In that ultrasound, they didn't detect an abnormality that they didn't like, and so they didn't proceed with an abortion, and now the baby's born, and so now we should be able to kill that baby. Because if I would have known this before, I would have killed it earlier. And that's the logic of these experts. There's continuing discussion around the topic of euthanasia, and it will continue to be expanded and normalized in our country. And not only because you have these so-called experts informing the government, but because you have the people of Canada readily embracing it. In 2016, not only did Canada legalize euthanasia, but so did the state of California. And we all think, wow, the state of California, they're so liberal, they're so you know, progressive. But in 2021, just over 400 people in the state of California took advantage of euthanasia and ended their life by the hands of a doctor. In that same year in Canada, similar population. In fact, California has more people than Canada. In the same year in Canada, 2021, more than 10,000 people killed themselves by the hands of a doctor. In fact, in Quebec, 5.1% of all deaths are attributed to euthanasia. It's the highest per capita rate of anywhere in the world. Now we're thinking, well, no, it can't be higher than the Netherlands or Belgium or these other progressive countries. No, Quebec. The highest per capita rate of those ending their lives through medical assistance and dying. And that rate continues to grow year after year. One media outlet reported recently how a disabled army veteran and former Paralympian, Christine Gauthier, she testified in parliament as she was calling her caseworker at Veterans Affairs, talking about the delays in her lift to get into her home, that they recommended to her to access medical assistance and dying. 
that your life is not worth living. You just kill yourself. We have a well-funded group called Dying with Dignity that continues to advocate for expanded euthanasia laws. There was one doctor I read about recently who was boasting and even laughing that she had killed 400 patients since this law came into effect. And she is one who, if somebody is another part of the country where you can't find a local doctor who will accept your application to kill yourself by their hand, then she will fly you to Vancouver into her clinic and she'll kill you herself. And she boasts about this. And her, she had another partner who's also killed more than 300 people. These two women, more than 700 people they've killed. And they, and they say, this is a good thing. There is no end point in sight for the culture of death in our country. The wedge is in the door. The wedge is in the foundation. Who knows where it's going to lead? Now, what I want to do, because this might seem so discouraging to us, and we know, okay, the end result is not good. But what I want to do is, is talk about the ideas that underlie this culture of death. That underlie saying that euthanasia is not only morally acceptable, but rather it's actually morally honorable. This is righteous. This is dignity in your death. This is a good thing. And so what are those ideas? Now, if you're thinking, you know, we haven't touched a text of scripture yet, we're, we're going to get there. But what I want to do is, is talk about these, these bad ideas that are, that are growing in our society today. And then we're going to go back to the Bible and see what the Bible says and, and how that corrects our thinking into truth. So here's four ideas. And this, these ideas are not meant to be exhaustive, but some of the major ones that influence people's thinking and their morality and their ethic in today's day and age. The first is this, secularism. Secularism. Now, secularism is defined a number of ways, some of which the way it's defined you might agree with and other ways that you might disagree with. Today's secularism has come to mean that there is no place for religion in the public square. There is no place for God in politics. There is no place for the scripture or, or God's truth to impact the laws and the makeup of a society. The society is to be neutral, free from religion. That's the idea of secularism. Now, it's quite right to say that there is a separation of church and state, that nobody wants pastors of the church to to run the country as some kind of ecclesiocracy, And so too, do you not want the state to run the church? There's a separation of powers, and yet both those powers owe their allegiance and their authority to God, and they are judged according to his word. And so there are different jurisdictions, but yet they're all in service to God, and our knowledge of God and what he says is right and wrong ought to permeate every realm of life, including what happens in the government and what happens in the church. The separation of church and state was originally by the reformers and those after them conceived to protect the church from the state. To protect the the sanctity of the worship of God from the tyranny of the king. But now it's the other way around. And the state feels it needs to protect itself from the church. And keep religion out of the public square. One author promoting euthanasia writes this. He said the Romans had a concept of patriotic suicide in which death was preferable to dishonor. 
And despite two millennia of Christian influence, we can still be inspired by the idea. As he writes in favor of euthanasia, he acknowledges the reason why it's not popular today and the reason why it had been outlawed in our country was because of two millennia of Christian influence. And as he envisions this this new, progressive, beautiful future, we actually can see it's actually a regression back to Roman paganism. And if we go back to Rome and to the ethic of Rome, then we will see patriotic suicide as something noble rather than the influence of Christianity. You see, this quote reveals there's no such thing as neutrality. You don't throw away Christianity without adopting another ethic, another standard. And this writer, it's, it's the Roman ideal. Because the question is not whether you will serve a God or not, or, or whether you will come under a standard or not. The question is always which. Which God will you serve? Which standard will you submit to? Is your standard God's word and the creator of heaven and earth? Or is your standard your own feelings? Is it the collective wisdom of a society? What's your standard of truth? What's your standard of right and wrong? There's no neutrality. And so secularism breeds ideas like what we see today with euthanasia. That's the first idea. The second idea I want to mention to you is utilitarianism. Utilitarianism. Now this is a, another big word that is rooted in that word utility. In other words, our ethics are defined by whether something is of use, has utility, has a good result. And so rather than God defining what is right and what is wrong, in a utilitarian society, the right choice is the choice that serves the highest utility or purpose. If it's useful to accomplish our goals, then it's right. One author, another author supporting euthanasia, he writes this. Human happiness and well-being is the highest good or summum bonum. That therefore any ends or purposes which that standard or ideal validates are just right and good. He is describing utilitarianism. The ends justify the means. Human well-being, human prosperity, it's the highest good. So anything that gets us there is by definition just, right, and good. Now, how does this play into euthanasia? Well, he goes on to argue that our well-being would include, include us being free from suffering. And so anything which would alleviate our suffering is a good thing. Anything that would, would end an unhappy life is a good thing. Anything that would remove a burden upon family or friends or remove a burden upon society is a good thing. Anything that would save money and other resources so that humanity can flourish and people can be happy, that is a a good thing. So the ends justify the means. And so even if that involves taking another human life, then that's a good thing. And we can go ahead and do that. Of course, most of they have a Christian worldview, they they hear that and they say, well, that's, that's not right. That's, that's awful, in fact. But yet we can, we can embrace 
a utilitarian ethic as well, unknowingly. And I think in many respects, many Christians have. And while we might say, well, if someone is a burden to society, we say, well, we should kill them. What do we say? Well, let's put them into a home. And our nursing home system today is the same thing they had in Germany before euthanasia started because these are burdens upon us. Burden upon our family, burden upon our home. And so let's, let's take that burden and alleviate that burden for our own good and happiness and we'll, just, we'll move them into this nursing home. And nursing homes today function like, like orphanages. They're not exactly the most beautiful places. Except for the orphans, the seniors that are in there are not waiting for a loving family to adopt them. They're waiting to die. When I brought my children to a nursing home, you go there and you visit folks and kids are walking through there and they're looking around. They're like, Daddy, is this where people come to die? Kids, they they know it. Because they know the only way you're leaving the nursing home is in a body bag. You're going to the morgue. It's the the only time you're leaving. You go there to die. And so we can adopt this same mentality and regard the elderly as burdens upon our lives. And we put them into these nursing homes and we forget what Jesus said to the Pharisees whenever they did not care for their parents, but said, you know, my wealth is dedicated to the temple. And so I can't care for you. And Jesus rebuked them and said, woe to you, you hypocrites. You have broken the commandments of God to obey the commandments and the traditions of men. And so this ethic can find its way into our own thinking as well. So we have secularism, utilitarianism. The third thing I'll mention is the idea of autonomy and free choice. The autonomous man and free choice. Here's an idea that is unquestionable. You don't even have to give argument. Of course we have free choice. Of course we're autonomous. And of course, exercising your choice is the highest good. If you don't let me exercise my choice, then you are dehumanizing me. You are being cruel to me unless you give me what I want. That's not even questioned today. And so this relates to euthanasia because if I say to you, I give you the permission, or I'll say this, you know, if I consent to you to come and take my things, then it's not stealing. And if I consent to you to come and take my life, it's not murder. It's not suicide. It's a, it's a medical procedure. It's care. It's you respecting my choice. In fact, if you do not give me the choice to end my life, then you are being cruel to me and you are treating me as a subhuman. You are dehumanizing me. And that was the argument brought before the Supreme Court. And the court said, yeah, you're right. Because free choice, an autonomous man, is deemed so important. Part of Canada's expanded euthanasia laws are to take account of this free choice because some families have complained that their dying loved ones, their their elderly loved ones are at a state now where they're unable to choose medical assistance in dying. They've lost their mind. And and because they've lost their mind, they're unable to, to consent to die 
And we as the family, we know they would want to die. They wouldn't want to live like this. But they're unable to give their consent right now. And so, well, they have to stick around. And so part of the expanded euthanasia laws are to allow someone earlier in their life when they're fit and healthy and say, you know, if I get dementia, if I get ALS, if I am paralyzed, if I am in an accident, if I can't speak, then I want to die. It's called a living will. And that's part of our laws now. And even, even if you haven't got it written down, but you've expressed that to your family, then that will count as being legal to kill someone. Because, hey, they let the family know they wouldn't want to live this way. You must respect their choice. The problem with this idea of autonomy and free choice is that our lives are a lot less free than we think they are. Our choices are a lot less free than we think they are. So many of our choices are directed because of the culture, because of the air we breathe, the the water that we swim in. Uh, We we are prone and led to, to make a certain number of decisions because of all the influences that are around us. And I want to share with you a thought experiment that, that easily proves this point. Imagine a senior in a nursing home. They're at the end of their life. They're not getting any younger. There's a number of diseases and ailments that they're suffering with. And in this nursing home, the last three years, they've been under COVID lockdown. For so much of that time, they haven't been able to see their family and friends And when they do, they just see a mask. They see someone gowning up. Other than that, they're relegated to the room. Even time of of being together with other folks in the nursing home has been put on hold. So for three years, they've had less freedoms than, than the prisoners of our country. Not only that, but they are told repeatedly because they have the news there. They have CBC. Repeatedly that they are a burden to society. That there is nothing in their life that they're doing now that is contributing to society. If they were gone or they were there, it doesn't matter. Their life doesn't matter. They just sit in their room. You know, maybe they do some crosswords or some word searches and that's it. Their life doesn't matter. They are a burden upon the system. They're a burden upon their family, a burden upon the medical staff, a burden upon finances. And they hear that. They're told that it is dignity to die with your vigor still in you. That a life that slowly reaches its end and just kind of vanishes away, that's not dying with dignity. You want to go out with your strength. You want to go out with your faculties. You want to go out in control. And so they're told it's dignity to die on your own terms. They're told that their quality of life is next to nil. And so at the end of the day, They freely choose death. Compare that to another elderly person. Same conditions, same age, same afflictions. But they're at home with their children. Stay in the house of one of their children. Around them as grandchildren. They sit at the table with meals. They're cared for. They're doted on. They're asked to read stories. They're asked to, when they can't read because their eyes don't work anymore, they, they recount stories of their youth. When they say to their family, I feel like such a burden. I don't contribute to this household. Their children say, no way. 
you changed my diapers when I couldn't do anything. And so now I'm serving you in the same way. We love you. You are valuable here. We want to honor you for all that you've done for us. And our children want to grow up and, and to know who, who grandpa and grandma is and, and love you. We, we, we miss you terribly if you were to go. And that person chooses life. Free choice. And so when we argue for free choice, argue for autonomy, the consequences or the circumstances all around that will dictate our choice one or the other. There's a reason why 10,000 people in one year who would choose death by assisted suicide when just a few years ago it was outlawed. Times have changed. Values have changed. Ideas have changed. Death is a choice made by society that have consigned the disabled, the elderly to be burdens. And it's by no means a free or autonomous choice. Number four, the fourth influence. The idea of personhood and quality of life. Personhood and quality of life. In a world where there is no God, there is no up and down. There is no male and female. And what is a person? If we don't know what male and female is today, then what is a person? And so-called experts have given the government advice that you ought to euthanize children up to one year old or maybe even up to three years old. Why? Because they're not real persons. They don't have the same cognizant abilities that an adult has. And so they're, they're potential people, but they're not yet people. They're not persons. They're biological life, but they're not yet personal life. Personal life need to protect Biological life, well, you can just, that's medical waste. You can get rid of that. And we think, again, oh, how awful. But isn't that how they describe the the baby in a womb? A potential person, potential life? When does someone become a person? You ask a doctor today who believes in abortion, when does someone become a person? They won't be able to tell you. We don't know. They become a person when society deems them a person. Or better yet, when when a mother wants her child, it's a person. If she doesn't, it's medical waste. That's what defines personhood. We have terms like fetus, embryo, blastocyst. And while these terms are technical terms, and I think we can use them, my greatest concern is when we use these apart from labels of personhood like baby, like child, like human being. Because we tend to use these terms to dehumanize something and then to say we can dispatch with it. You know, all their tests for personhood today, they say, well, their their cognizant ability is is not quite there. And then these, these doctors who are promoting euthanasia would even compare a child to a dog. I know, I know some of you probably have dogs that are smarter than some of my kids. You know? When you call your dog to come, they'll come. When I call my kid, they're, they're crawling the other way. Because a child, a newborn child, doesn't have the same intellectual ability at that age than, than, a, than a dog would. And they say, look, we put down dogs. 
whenever they're suffering, why not the same to a child? And even less of an ability of their mind. It's awful. Because we recognize that a person is not a person because the society deemed them so. Because they're a human being from the very moment of conception. Like Dr. Seuss said, and is written on some of the hospitals and the NICUs, a person is a person no matter how small. It's my prayer that those doctors would believe that. There's also the issue of quality of life. Because the saying is, well, the quality of life has, has fallen below livable standards, so it's better for you to be euthanized than to continue living. You're living a life not worth living. Quality of life is so low. But of course, the question becomes, well, who defines quality life? Who says your life is a quality life? Would you like to leave the quality of your life into a panel of experts that sits in Ottawa? To determine whether you're fit to continue living or not? Or whether your life has fallen below a standard of quality? And so, and so now you receive the care of death? What about people and their chance for improvement? What about those who've been paralyzed? Even paralyzed, maybe from the waist down or even paralyzed from the neck down. There's so many who've been afflicted in this way and their first inclination as they grapple with this new reality is I'd rather die. And I've heard countless stories of paralyzed people meeting other paralyzed people with a similar condition and say, hey, you need to cheer up. Life is not over. There is so much you can accomplish. And these people have a new sense of purpose and well-being. And they go forward and they not only are productive in their, in their own society or family units, but they even give back to the world. So why should we say their quality of life is so, so low? And even the disabled, mentally disabled. You know, there are, there are those who, who have their full faculties and look at someone who is who is mentally disabled or mentally challenged. And they say, well, there is a life not worth living. And yet when I look at that same individual, they're always happy, (laughs) always smiling. Who are you to determine that their life is not worth living? Just because they're not as smart as you? Just because they're not as productive as you? Just because they will not be able to, to use their hands like you do? Does that mean they're not worth living? What's your standard for quality of life? And so this is used today to relegate those who are deemed unworthy to dispatch themselves to receiving the care of death. Now, if that's the kind of care that doctors give today, then I don't want their care. So with these ideas, they're growing in their prominence in our society today. And, And they know you need to get these ideas into the minds of children when they're young. And you, you probably saw just a few months ago, uh, Health Canada funded this other group to release this activity book for children on medical assistance and dying. Not that they would access this service themselves, at least not yet, but that they would know how to deal with their grandparents who have chosen to end their life. And how they ought to wrestle with their own feelings and emotions. Because you know that as a child, everything in them is saying, Grandma should not take her life. 
I love her and I want to spend as much time as I can with her. Why is grandma wanting to go? And it's this whole coloring book, activity book. All these things are meant to affirm the child in these ideas. And to go against their feelings, against what is naturally within them as this is wrong. You know, children today are being steeped in tenets about origins, about ethics, about purpose, about meaning, about death. To me, that sounds like a religion. Is not the realm of religion to talk about origins and ethics and what happens when we die. And yet that is what is being taught in our schools under the pretense of science and neutrality, but it's a whole new religion. And it's a culture of death because it rejects the author of life. Now, what I want to do, I do want to get to the the scriptures. And I want to talk about what the scriptures would say and the ideals and the ideas of scripture that show us that not only should euthanasia be outlawed, not only should it be illegal, it should be unthinkable. It should be, should be seen as, the great, as a great wickedness. Because the challenge that we have as the church is not that we would be right lockstep, like pushing the envelope, be the ones driving that wedge into the foundation to, to expand euthanasia laws and, and cheering them on. But as the church, our, our temptation and our tendency is to maybe follow a decade behind. And, and we'll, we'll embrace the values of the society, but just not right now. We're, we're going to drag our feet and, uh, and we'll, we'll get there eventually, but, but it's going a bit too fast for us. An example of this is a church in Manitoba, United Church, that just recently, one of their members, 86-year-old woman, uh, otherwise healthy, except just diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, doesn't want to go through that. And so she booked medical assistance in dying and had it done at her church in a crossing over ceremony. And the church was there and they had a service. Imagine attending your own funeral and seeing it all before you are finally put asleep by the cocktail of poison they put into your body. This is in the church. These are among people who profess to believe the Bible, profess to know Christ. And just look at our society today. You know, look at our society today and the church culture today compared to where the church was just a couple hundred years ago. What has more influenced the church today? Is it the world or is it the word of God? Where are our ethics in terms of premarital sex, for instance? Even, even mentioning that, it's like, what, are you from another age? Is that a thing anymore? No, no one talks about that. Everyone's doing, all the kids are doing that. Because the churches have been influenced by the world. What about feminism? The roles of men and women. Even to, even to come here and say, well, God has entrusted men and biblically qualified men to teach and to preach the word and to lead the church. It's like, wow, that's offensive. Because we've been influenced by the world that feminism is true. And no, we don't adopt it right away. We'll just wait a generation. We'll wait a decade and then we'll embrace it. And the same will be true for euthanasia. This is relatively recent, but just wait till our children grow up and look at the churches and you'll see more and more of these crossing over ceremonies in churches all around. And it won't be united churches, it'll be evangelical churches. So what does the word say about this? 
What does the word say? Look at me in Genesis 1.27. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, we spent our time this afternoon looking at the ideas that are promoted in the world today. And now we want to look at the ideas that are promoted in scripture. True ideas. And what we see in this text, the first idea, I have have four more ideas from scripture. The first is, there is a, a sanctity of life made in the image of God. That life is sacred. It is not secular. It is not common. It is not profane. It is not just an animal, just a a clump of cells. It is not just a piece of flesh. It is not just stardust. It is not just an evolved ape. But life is sacred. There is sanctity to life, to human life, because male and female have been made in God's image. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Here we see not only the origins of man, Here we see not only the definition of or the distinction between male and female. Later we'll get into more of that in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. But here we see that man is created connected to God. Not only is humanity a creature under the creator. But man is made unlike any other creature in God's creation in being made in the image of God. In the likeness of God. Now to be made in the image or the likeness of God. Means that that we in some capacity. Reflect God. That there is something about humanity. That God has so made male and female. As they reflect the goodness of God. They reflect the character of God. They reflect the person of God. And of course that can be seen in a number of ways. The ability for abstract thought and language. To recognize beauty, to experience relationships of love and of joy, to have personal commitment, to create and to to build, to exercise dominion and authority. All of these things are, are given to us as a stewardship from our maker who made us in his image to reflect him and to reflect his goodness. And so when God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he wants the whole world filled with his image and likeness to show forth his beauty. And what's important about this is that because human beings are made in God's image, they are inherently valuable. Men and women, children, any human person has inherent dignity and value and worth bestowed on them by the creator. You do not have dignity because you remained in control to your death. You do not have dignity because you are a productive member of society. This is, this is the hook that is used against women that say, hey, women, if you want to be of value, you want to be of worth, you want to have dignity, then come and work in the world like the men do. Because in your productivity in the world, that's how your dignity is defined. God says, no. You have dignity, you have value, and you have worth Because you're made by God in his image. And you're meant to reflect his goodness. So it's not how many people like you. 
Not how productive you are, not how valuable you may feel, not the quality of your life, not your IQ, not your your organs that you have or don't have, or the use of your limbs that you have or you don't have. You are made in the image of God and you have dignity and value and worth. This is why the Bible treats murder as so serious. Genesis 9-6 says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. There's a license for the death penalty. And it says, for, here's the explanation, for God made man in his own image. Murder is murder. And to take another human life will cost you your own life because you have destroyed the image of God. Because in murder, you have not only just got rid of a bag of chemicals, some medical waste, you have destroyed an image bearer of God. You have defaced the image of God. You have destroyed the image of God. You have attacked God himself. And so murder is heinous in the sight of God. You know how some, if they, if they can't bring harm to somebody else, then they'll, they'll burn them and destroy them in effigy. You know, you go across the other side of the world and, and they're so angry about the United States that they'll take a U.S. flag and they'll burn it. They'll take a picture of some famous person. They'll burn that. It's like, we can't physically bring harm to you. And so we'll burn this flag and we'll burn this image in effigy. We'll, we'll do it as a sign and a symbol that this is what we would do to you if we had the opportunity. And that's what people are doing in this world today when they destroy image bearers of God. We can't get at God. We'll destroy his creation. It's a work of the devil. But because of the image of God, not only do we have dignity, value, and worth, we are called to love our neighbor. We're called to love those in need by caring for them, which means preserving their life, to alleviate suffering through care rather than through death. In other words, life is precious Because God is precious. That's the first truth. The sanctity of life made in the image of God. The second thing I want to share with you from scripture. Second truth. Is is that God is in control of life and death. God is in control of life and death. He is the creator. Here he makes man and woman in his own image and his own likeness. He sets them in the midst of the garden. Adam and Eve did not choose to be born into this world. When they had children, their children didn't choose that. When you were born, you did not choose your parents. You did not choose the circumstances or the occasion of your birth. Because your birth is God's prerogative. And likewise, for death as well. It's God who brings to life and it's God who ends our days. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn to these passages, but you... You might want to jot them down if you wish to look at them later. But I'm going to read a number of passages that show this. How God is in control of life and death. Job 14 verse 5 says this. Man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Ecclesiastes 3.2 says there is a time to be born and a time to die. And these are God's times. 1 Samuel 2.6 says the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, down to the grave, and he raises up. This is his prerogative. David writes in Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. 
That word unformed substance in Hebrew is goel. It's, you might translate it fetus today. And God says, he says, you saw me as a fetus. And in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. James 4, 13 to 15 says this, Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, make all these plans. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. In other words, if you live not recognizing that God is the author of life, the one who who opens up the womb and the one who shuts the eyes at death, if you don't realize that, you're living like a fool. You must say, if the Lord wills, I live because he's in control of life and death. And we are not. We can think that we are, but we're not. We have much less control in this life than we may think we have. And it's best, it's righteous, it's good, it's comforting to trust the God who knows all things. You know, like a, like a child when they're really scared or um, something has happened to them that is greatly distressing them and, and they, they run to mom and dad and just grab a hold of your pant leg or your, pant, or your leg's so very tight, you pick them up and they're comforted by that. Otherwise, they're inconsolable. And as we grow into adults, we're like, well, I'm, I'm better than that. I'm in control of my life. I don't, need, I don't need God. I don't need anybody else. And yet, look at society today. We're a mess. That's why sex and entertainment and drugs and, and antidepressants are, are used to the, to the hilt because we're, we're a mess. We don't have it all together. We're not in control. But it's a comfort to recognize that we serve a God who is in control of life and death. That there's not one maverick molecule in all of the universe that God is governing all things, including life, including death. And so we can trust him. He cares for the lilies of the fields. He knows when a bird falls to the air. He feeds the birds of the air. So will he not also provide us all of our needs? And so it's better to adapt to the plan and the power of the creator than to think we are in control of our life and to try to exercise the creator's power without it and rely on our own plans without submitting ourselves to his plan. Now we think about God in control of life or death. I want to correct a few perhaps misunderstandings. Some might hear me and say, well, do you mean the Bible teaches fate? Like no matter what you do, God will just do what he does. And your choices bear no difference because whatever will be, will be. It's fate. The Bible does not teach fate. First of all, fate is an impersonal thing. God is very personal. And second, in God's governance of the universe, he has determined and decided and so governs this world through the free choices of his creatures. It's mind-blowing how God does that. That he accomplishes purpose in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the Jews did exactly what they wanted to do. And yet it fulfilled God's plan, according to Acts 2 and Acts 4. So our choices do matter 
It's not fate, but our choices are not ultimate. We have a limited jurisdiction in which to operate our choices. You don't choose when you're born and you don't choose when you die. That's God's prerogative. And so we have limited choice in certain areas because of this area of jurisdiction. That's God's call, not yours. Another clarification to make. Some might hear me by saying, well, if God is in control of life and death, should that mean we should never do anything to, to alleviate suffering? So if somebody is, is dying, we ought to, well, this must be their time. God has determined. Don't bring them to the hospital. Don't give them drugs. This is their time. That's not what I'm saying either. Proverbs 31, 6 and 7 says this. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Now this passage is not advocating for drunkenness. But those who are perishing, those who are on death's doorstep, give them strong drink. Give them some drugs. Give them something to alleviate their suffering and pain. Don't kill them, but ease their suffering as they're in the grip of death. Now, I know there's much complexity on this subject, and I've tried to state these as simply as I can. But there's some difficult decisions to make as someone approaches the end of life and they're perishing. We have machines today that can keep people alive for days, weeks, even years dependent upon a machine to breathe for them. Is there ever a time to say, we're going to turn that machine off? These are hard questions. These aren't easy questions. But that is a much different thing than saying we ought to kill them. There is a time to recognize this person is gone. That this is the end of their life. And I must let them go. But that's quite a, a different than us pushing them over the edge and saying, I'm deciding when your time is. And so we see God is in control of life and death. The third thing I want to show you from scripture is that God has a purpose and value in suffering. God has a purpose and a value in suffering. We're in the book of Genesis. God made male and female. And then immediately Adam and Eve sin. And this world is then enveloped in suffering and death. And as you get to the third chapter of Genesis, you're like, boy, we just started this story. (laughs) And now all the suffering and death. Whoa, didn't God see this coming? And we realize, well, that's right at the beginning because God has a purpose for suffering and death. There's a reason why sin entered the world. There's a reason why suffering entered the world because God has a purpose for suffering. To those who advocate for euthanasia, they say there is no purpose in suffering. No purpose. And so if you're suffering, then whatever we can to end that suffering, including death, is free to do. Because suffering is bad, period. Well, look what the scriptures say. Or listen to what scriptures say. Again, a number of passages, you can jot these references down. Romans 5, 3 to 4 says this. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, maybe you had a mental lapse 
when I first started reading that verse, but, but Paul said, we rejoice in our sufferings. We take joy in our suffering. Not because he was a, a strange person that enjoyed physical pain and harm, but because that suffering is producing character, endurance, and hope. Oh, and I want character. And I want to endure. And I want hope. And so I rejoice in my sufferings. And we can all think of situations in our life where we have gained character, we have gained endurance, and we have gained hope because we have experienced a suffering or an affliction that we would not have gained if we had not suffered in that way. Now, it's not just Paul. Listen to what Peter writes. This is 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? In this you rejoice, being grieved by these trials, because your faith is being tested. And like gold that is purified, so too your faith is being purified and refined. And at the day of Jesus Christ, it'll be seen as a precious thing. Because suffering has tested you and you've passed the test. And so rejoice. Not just Paul, not just Peter, but James. James 1, 2, and 3. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he continues, steadfastness, hope, and hope, love. And he goes, an entire pile of virtues that are yours Because you are suffering, and so count it all joy. Don't just smile when the sun is out and it's bright days, but thank God for the rain. We need the rain. And count it all joy when you suffer, because God is producing in you a steadfastness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 12.10, he writes, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I'm content with those things, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Then I see Christ working in me. Oh, and I want to see Christ working in me. And if you can't think of a time in your life where suffering has produced character or hope or joy or steadfastness, Or if you're experiencing suffering and you're thinking, well, how can God get glory from that? How can God bring anything good from that? You read the headlines. How can God be using that for his goodness and for his glory? Then remember Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ accomplished your salvation. He accomplished the redemption of this entire universe. He reversed the curse through his suffering and his death on the cross. And you remember his disciples when they're walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus had just died and they've, they've lost their mind. It's Messiah. And now he's dead. All their hope, it's gone. God can't, God can't use this now. And Jesus calls them foolish, not knowing the scripture. Being in unbelief. God promised that through the suffering of his servant, he would bring salvation. And so anytime we think, 
How could God use that suffering? Well, look at Christ. He used suffering to save, to forgive, to accomplish the, the best thing that we know of. Also, in our own suffering, how do we, how we not know that God will bring healing? What about the man born blind in John chapter 9? He was born that way so that the glory of God might be seen in him. You know, it's easy to understand that when people are suffering, they're tempted to fear, to anxiety, and to despair. And not only when suffering are we tempted to experience fear and anxiety and despair, we live in a world now where we've had a few more words coined called misinformation and disinformation. And it may surprise you, or or maybe not surprise you, that even medical authorities can be sources of misinformation or disinformation. Which would then in turn, rather than allow someone to think clearly about the plight around them, that they begin to panic and think this is way worse than what it actually is because of that misinformation. And so you take someone who's already prone to fear and to anxiety and to worry. And then you have a doctor, a society say, well, there's no hope for you. You're just going to, you're going to suffer. It's going to be terrible. And when they hear that, they say, well, I guess there's nothing to do but to take my life. I don't want to experience that. This misinformation can make a patient think that their condition is far worse than it actually is. And is this not true for every suicide you ever heard about? I know many of you probably know someone who's taken their own life. And as you hear about and think about the reasons that were going on in their head when they took their own life, most people would, of course, sympathize for their hardship, but then think, well, that's not insurmountable, those problems. You should be able to to live with that. Especially teens who commit suicide today. And and they they write a note or they they explain to their family why why they just can't go on. And you and you hear those things and you're like, what's what's the problem? You're trying you're trying to be sensitive. But like, well that, that's not that bad. That that's not a reason to, to give up. But it's because they believe there is no purpose, no value in suffering. And so they believe their condition is far worse than it actually is. But scripture says that in your suffering, you will get hope, endurance, patience. You have to commit yourself to prayer because God has a purpose in that suffering. Fourth and finally, the fourth biblical truth I'll share with you this afternoon is that death is the enemy, not the friend. Death is an enemy and not a friend. The whole premise of euthanasia is that suffering is bad. My condition, my quality of life is bad. And so death is the answer. Death is my friend. Death will alleviate the burden. Death will alleviate the pain. Death is the answer. But this is wrong for two reasons. First, death does not end suffering 
for those who have not trusted in Christ. For those who have not trusted in Christ, death does not alleviate suffering, but rather it is the path to God's judgment. It's like what they say, from the frying pan into the fire. Hebrews 9.27 says, It has been appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. For those who are suffering in this life and who are not trusting Christ, who think that death is going to bring me some sweet relief. Oh, they're in for such an awakening. There will be more weeping for them than there is now. More pain. Because rather than death being a a stairway to heaven, death for them is grease rails to hell. Well, they experience the wrath and the fury of God. So death is not a friend. Secondly, we might be thinking, well, death is the enemy for the unbeliever, but could be an option for a Christian, right? Well, Secondly, death is the great enemy and not the Christian hope. Death is not the hope of the Christian. Death enters into God's creation back in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned. God says, if you eat of that that fruit of that tree, the day you eat it, you will surely die. Death is the consequence for sin. Death is not our friend. Death is the enemy. In Romans 5, The scriptures explain there that death and sin came into this world through one man, through Adam. And yet through Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, through him comes life and righteousness. So death is not our hope, but rather resurrection is our hope. And the resurrection in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, which talks about the resurrection says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When you read the book of Psalms, you read many times how the Psalter or the psalmist there is, is close to death. Enemies are hounding him. He's, he's on the verge of defeat, on the verge of death. And rather than cry out, oh God, just slay me now, like Job does in a sinful way, the psalmist says, oh Lord, spare my life. Deliver me. Let not death envelop me. Save me from my enemies. Save me from the grave. Give me life. That's the hope of the Christian. Life, not death. You know, when we think about the resurrection, there are some who think, well, when we die right now, that is, we enter glory. And I don't mean to to burst any bubbles, but when we die, What Paul says is absent from the body and present with the Lord. Presently with the Lord, yes, but yet not yet what you will be. Because the resurrection doesn't happen until Christ returns. Heaven is not some disembodied state where you're floating around with wings and a halo and play your harp and do nothing all day. Heaven is an earthy experience. It's described as the new heavens and the new earth. We read about it. Where the lion and the lamb, the wolf and the, and the lamb lay down together. Where there be work, where there be nations, where there be relationships. It will be more real than our existence now. You might think about it this way as an illustration. Today we're living in Middle Earth. We're living in, in a story. But in heaven, we'll be brought out of that story and we'll live 
where Tolkien lives <laughs> in real life. So heaven, heaven is even more real than, than this existence right now. And our hope is life. Our hope is resurrection. It is not a disembodied state. That's a, that's a Greek ideal. It is a physical life with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will come when he returns. And even when Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's not there saying, I want death. Because he then says, it is better for me to live and be among you. What he means is, even if I lose my life for the gospel, it is gain because I'm with Christ. My life is secure. He didn't have a death wish. He had a gospel wish, a Christ wish. That was governing his life. And his hope was resurrection. And as we consider these four ideas from Scripture, we recognize that what the Bible offers that the world doesn't offer is the idea of hope. People want their life to end when they have no hope. And the Bible says there are plenty of reasons to hope. There are plenty of reasons to hope because as we face difficulties in life, affliction, suffering, and as we're facing the very end of life, we can, we can see death's door. We can look back and say, my life was so brief and now I'm at the end. And it's at that point we recognize that Jesus Christ, even more than perhaps we recognize in our youth, he is our hope in life and death. People need hope. When someone's on death's door, they don't need some kind of chemical cocktail to put them to sleep and then to death. They need a mighty savior who can save them from death. And Christ is that mighty savior. They need one who is full of compassion and care, who will weep over their souls and who desire their salvation. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. They need one who is tender and lowly of heart and says, come and take my burden and my yoke upon you for it is light. When they're facing death, they need to know that their sins have been forgiven. That the guilt and the shame and the regret that they struggle with, oh, Jesus Christ has died on the cross and risen again on that third day so that you can stand before God blameless and holy. That's what they need. They need to know they have a Savior in heaven who not only died for them, but a Savior in heaven who intercedes for them with his prayers. Oh, and if on our deathbed, if we could just hear the prayers of Christ, then any thoughts of suicide would, would flee our minds as we consider the strength by which Christ is praying for us to be renewed in our spirits. That's the kind of hope we need. We need one who loves us. One who made us. The one who knows all of our days. The one who will comfort us. The one who will wipe away our sorrows and wipe away our tears and comfort our sorrows. We need the one with the power and the ability to keep us secure in him even through death. People need Christ. People need Christ. Christ is the answer to pain. He's the answer to suffering. He's the answer to imminent death. And so the question for us is, are we those that are going to succumb to the ideas and the lies, the misinformation of this world? Or are we going to be those who cling to Christ? Say, oh yeah, life is hard, but I have a great savior. 
Oh yes, this is dark right now and I'm in pain and I don't see a future, but Christ prays for me. Christ loves me. Christ will carry me through. And even when I can't walk myself, he will take me up in his arms because Christ is my hero and I'm going to cling to him and I'm going to cling to him and he'll be my hope in life and in death. Let's pray.